The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Holly, we say this, and I'm not going to start by saying each and every week we have an incredible guest with incredible stories and is going to tell us amazing things. Okay, you know what? I'm going to start it like that. We have an incredible guest who has an incredible <laughs> story who is doing amazing things. Yeah, that, uh, that sums it up, but there's still so much more to the story. And that's the thing that I love is that as I was kind of diving into the socials and that I'm like, ooh, there are a million questions that I have that hopefully um, we will be able to ask and uh, Ketchy will not be mad at us for asking the questions. <laughs> no pressure. That's where we are. So uh, Ketchy Okuchi, mm-hmm. how are you? I am great. Thank you guys so much for having me on your podcast. And congratulations to y'all. Five years in the business. That's awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a fun journey. Uh, the podcast for us was a, a nice extension of what we did on our morning show. Because mm-hmm. morning shows, you know how it is in the biz. Like, yeah, two minutes. And then, then be over. quiet. Whereas <laughs> this, we really get to dive into wow. stories. And it's so, I don't know. I just, I love hearing more about the whys, the hows, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. So, yeah, five years. <laughs> no, no pressure uh, on any of this by the way today and i mean really you're the only one with the answers so you could lie to us but the first <laughs> one is, is our most important and that is uh who are you and where did you come from my name is kechi okuchi and i am 32 years old i'm nigerian so i come from nigeria originally i was born there i lived there until i was 16 years old and moved to america when i was 17 so i've been here since about 2007 and um here being houston texas essentially and yeah so um i've been here ever since built a life here with my family and um i guess I've uh, gotten the chance to wear many hats since I got here. Um, I am now a speaker. I'm a singer. I'm an author. I'm a burn survivor advocate and an advocate for many other causes that um, speak to me. We're going to dive into all of this and so much more, but I'm curious, what was life like growing up in Nigeria for you and your family? Life was very fun. I had um, a fun childhood. My memories are filled with mostly positives. Thank God. And, um, I was an only child for a while. I mean, about 11 years before my sister was born. And then we became this family of four that was just really small and cute and sweet. And, you know, being an only child was fun, too, because I had all my parents' attention. And, you know, we didn't have a lot, but they never made me feel like I was like lacking anything. You know, um, I guess having one kid that was pretty easily satisfied by, I guess, books and just music, it wasn't really hard to keep me entertained but they were both very loving and um really believed in the value of family having family around you so I grew up very close to my cousins you know my extended family my aunts my uncles and um really kind of grew up in that kind of familial environment so you know having that um early on was definitely something that fed into my life you know moving forward, especially with what was to come, you know, essentially. We always have these dreams, these goals, these aspirations, and what you thought of maybe where you were going to be to where you are now is perhaps very different, obviously. But what did you think or where did you think that you moving to the States was going to be a thing? Did you think that you were ever going to have this, this uh, career of uh, singing and writing and everything else? Not at all. Not even close. None, nothing that's happening now was ever something that I that I thought would happen, that I planned to happen. Definitely things that I 
would have been happy if they happened. They were dreams because these were things that were tied to my hobbies at the time as a kid, things that I loved to do, like, but they were extracurricular. You know, they weren't like passion. They weren't, they weren't things that I was like aiming for as career goals. So being able to do those things now is definitely an interesting turn of events and just another way how God just kind of surprises you and makes you, puts you where you're supposed to be, you know? Um, but um, I digress. Essentially, you know, I did not think anything I'm doing right now would have been, you know, what I'd be doing. Like at 16, I had my my heart set on like economics. That was like something that I felt like, you know, was uh, conventional, you know, and also interesting to me, you know, where no one would complain if that's what I wanted to pursue. At the same time, it wasn't like, you know, anything science that just like completely turns me off, you know, um, it was just something in the middle that would be a reasonable place to, you know, have a career you know, working in the UN or for like a chamber of commerce or, you know, things like that. That was, that was really my, where I was at that age. So yeah, it, all this is very surprising. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. So you're going to move to the U.S. What was, what was that? I mean, I can only imagine it's so far away now from the, the roots that you had and your family and your aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine there might've been some hesitancy to move. The circumstances were very special. So it wasn't really a choice, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it was more born from the situation at the time, you know, um, after the accident happened, there really wasn't any um, option about where to go for a constructive surgery. So um, it was something that had to happen and happened, you know, it wasn't an independent move. I moved with my entire family. So myself and my immediate family, but that's what I mean by that. So my mom, my sister, my dad. So um, I wasn't going to be moving by myself and I wasn't going to be moving just, you know, for, um, I guess, the heck of it. It was really, you know, uh, the the goal was reconstructive surgery. And then from there, it kind of just became, you know, you need to be here to continue getting treatment. And then it naturally just became this um, kind of adapting to this new environment long term. And then before we knew it, we were, you know, going to, we were building our lives here and we've been here ever since. So we're talking reconstructive surgery. Let's go back before we go forward. Mm. What led up to this then taking place? Born and raised in Nigeria, right? Went to high school there, obviously. I went to a boarding high school. Um, and that's pretty much where I spent the next six years of my life, from 11 to 16. That's the environment that I was in. And um, at 16 years old, I was a high school senior. I was in my final year. And getting ready for the SATs, you know, um, my goal was to study in London. I was hoping I would get into a college in London. So um, that was like at the forefront of my mind. Anyone's mind really as a senior, that's all you're thinking about is the SATs and just, you know, graduating properly. Mm -hmm. So, um, and of course, prom, very important. Yes. And, um, (laughs) and so these were the things that were in my mind. I remember this was the first semester, fall semester 2005. And um, yeah, so we're preparing. We had seen some school during the semester, had an excursion, see some, um, went to some college fairs, things like that. And um, the semester ended and it was December 10th, 2005. It was a Saturday. So we're heading home for Christmas and uh, it was going to be a very short trip. Usually Christmas is about three weeks. So we would be back on campus like early January. So it really wasn't a long um, holiday, but one that we looked forward to regardless, because, you know, it's anything to get out of the the school campus. So we basically got ready. And when I say we, I mean 61 students from my high school. So usually those that live in the same area would travel the same route. 
You know, it's a boarding school that kind of has a lot of people from different parts of the country. So when we're going home, we go home to different like locations. Mm-hmm. Myself, I lived about an hour and a half by flight from my boarding school, as well as 60 other students from my school. So we would travel together. So this was typical. You know, we fly all the time. It wasn't weird that we were you know, going to be fine that day. This was just routine. So 61 of us got to the airport. Flight was delayed briefly. Eventually, the plane got here. It was a commercial plane, regular jet. We boarded with other passengers. There were 109 in total. So 61 students plus 109 other passengers, including the flight crew. And then we got in the air and we start the journey started. Everything was fine. You know, it was an hour and a half. This is a trip, a route we've done a million times, you know, so there was, it was uneventful as flights usually are, should be. Everything was fine for most of the flight. And then the pilot starts the descent into the airport, right? And it's about 15 minutes left in the flight. And then the turbulence starts. Again, routine. Turbulence is not a weird thing. It happens with flights. It's normal. Then, you know, this one just started to get really um, exaggerated, get really intense, you know, um, and persistent. It just kept going and getting worse. And I remember like in the cabin, you know, everyone was just kind of like very quiet. I mean, flights are usually quiet, but this time it was kind of like this tension, like no one wanted to say anything because we were all thinking the same thing. But at the same time, it's like, why are you even thinking that? Like the, the chances of that happening are like one in a million. They never, they rarely ever happen. You know, um, it's just unlikely. So even in that moment, no one wanted to think the worst, you know, and then the worst was happening. You know, this woman at the back of the plane kind of screamed and then it just incited chaos. Everyone was screaming, screaming God's name, Jesus, blood of Jesus, like just shouting and no running around, just just yelling because like you don't run around, you're strapped into your seatbelt. So I just remember sitting there in my seat. I was in an aisle seat in the front of the plane and next to me was one of my closest friends. She was in the aisle seat next to mine. And I remember just sitting there like, what is happening? Like, it was surreal. It was like a movie. Like, it, it was like the kind of thing that only happens in movies. So it was really hard for me to like believe that this was reality because I just, it was just, wow, am I actually inside a plane that's like, having issues like is this real and you know I couldn't get past that thought process and I remember looking at my friend and we held each other's hands and she's the last person that I saw the last person that I spoke to before the darkness just came over me and it was like it was like holding her hand and then and then hearing this scraping metal sound in my brain and then I just, I must have blacked out at that point, you know, so I don't remember the actual impact of the crash or maybe the blacking out was the impact. I don't know. But my next vivid memory after that is opening my eyes. I was lying in a hospital bed in South Africa and five weeks had passed and I was waking up from a coma. Wow. And um, that's essentially when that's the beginning of a whole new kind of life. You know, that was the beginning of my journey as you know, a burn survivor, all my plans, everything that we had planned, everything that was, that was going on, none of it mattered anymore. And this was now our new reality. You were in the hospital for how long? This was South Africa. I was in the hospital for seven months, four months in the burn, the um, burn ICU, and then three in the ward. When did you realize that it was as bad as it was? That's a great question. Because for a while after I woke up, I really thought that I would like be up on my feet and going back to school by May. You know, this was accident happened in December, December 10th, um, coma for five weeks. I woke up in January 2006 and prom was in, I think, June. And then graduation was 
wait, May, and then graduation was June, something like that, in that area, that time frame. And I really thought, like, in the beginning, that, like, you know, I would get better and join my schoolmates and be back on campus for, like, prom and for graduation. Like, there's no way I'm going to miss those things. There's no way things are that bad, you know? But it was interesting because the better I got, the more I realized how bad things were. You know, um, mm-hmm. at first, it was just waking up and being just this numbness, not really quite being there, you know? Um at first, I was, when I first got to the hospital, I was given like a 30% chance of survival by my surgeon, the first surgeon that saw me when I came into the hospital. And he had seen me and then he had um, had to go on his like leave right after. So he didn't expect to see me alive after he came back, like didn't have any expectations at all. Of course, this is stuff my mom told me after the fact. Mm-hmm. But like so when he came back, you know, and saw me, he was like surprised, you know, um, of course, in a good way, but like, you know, that was how bad things were. But I didn't know that while I was in that exact state, you know, at that time, it was just very fluy, very dreamy. I was having, you know, I was just going in and out of weird dreams and visions and just things that I guess happen when you're like standing on the brink, really. But as my life became more certain and my foothold on like, you know, this side became more sure, you know, I was obviously not going to die. I was going to be alive and I was going to be fine medically, you know, and my body, my wounds were healing and I got to see more and more of my flesh like exposed. So Mm -hmm. like, as I healed, they took advantages and I saw like the damage more and more. And the more I saw, the more I realized not only am I not going to make prom or graduation, but I'm probably going to be in the hospital for a very, very long time, like years. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, that was a phase of my treatment that was the hardest to deal with because reality was setting in. It wasn't just, it wasn't just about like the injuries anymore, but about my life and like what quality of life I would have looking forward, like the future. And then also how long was I going to be like a, a patient, you know, how long will I be away from outside of like removed from society and out and removed from like the regular, like just regular life, you know? So that was a very difficult psychologically difficult time for sure after getting over the physical parts but yeah mm-hmm. and with injuries they say most of it is psychological um and i can't even imagine the trauma that you were trying to process during that time uh, for someone who is going through trauma and trying to process um reality versus the grief of all levels of, of people that you knew of the dreams what are some of the things that help navigate that situation for you in a healthy way? I think for me, the most important thing was my mom at first, mm-hmm. my family. So support system, you know, talking about the family that I grew up with. I mean, all that came into play during this time in my life in the most crucial way. Um, I know, I feel like, you know, I take it for granted a lot. The, the fact that I had that kind of support. But I learned over time, especially after I moved to America, that not a lot of people can say the same as burn survivors, that they had access to that kind of support system. And it really, it breaks my heart because I don't know who I would be today without that support system. My mom, first and foremost, was not only was she like my my rock in, in the hardest time, but she was my reason quite literally for opening my eyes every morning, just knowing that I would see her the next day, you know, and and I needed something to hold on to in that beginning time when I was, when things were shaky and it wasn't certain that I would survive. That was like, 
an important, you know, the, it's interesting how the doctors talk about how there's a point where, and this point is where they have nothing to do with it. They can't do anything about it, but there's a point where the patient decides that they are going to survive this. And that's like a thing that doesn't have anything to do with the medicine or the treatment. They can treat all they want, but, but at some point the patient decides I'm going to actually play my own role in my survival, in helping, in helping things along. And my mom was a big part of my reason, you know, to actually make that decision to survive. So having her at the start, like from the beginning was so key for me. And then as time passed, eventually kind of morphed into me wanting to stay alive because I wanted to, I wanted to prove, I guess it was interesting. I kind of wanted to see how far I could go. It became a kind of test of like my willpower, I suppose. Like how, how, like if I've made it to this day, maybe I can make it tomorrow. Okay. Let me see if I can make it to the next day. What about the next, what about the next day? It was literally an everyday choice, like every single day. There was no looking forward like too much in the future because who knows if that's going to happen. And the past, you know, really didn't matter anymore. So that, that, that was also a big thing to like me getting to the point where my, my will was like, you know, my willpower, I want to see the next day and see the next day, you know, but then in the beginning, it was my mom and then eventually it became my entire family. So having that support of people who didn't care about anything except me getting better was definitely a huge thing that helped with dealing with that traumatic time because I didn't have anyone who cared about how I looked or anyone who cared about, you know, anything, you know, me missing school or just think reminding me constantly about life or whatever. It was just about in this moment here mm-hmm. now, we just want you to be okay. Take each day at a time. There's no rushing. There's no need to even think about anything else. You are fine. And we are here for you. And having that just simple hundred percent, you know, um, reliable support was extremely vital to my healing to the trauma and then also especially with the um the um I guess the psychological effects of just understanding that I was one of two survivors which came much later you know um the fact that no one else from my school survived you know these are things that they couldn't tell me until I was they were sure I could handle the weight of the the truth this happened about four months in. And just if I didn't have my family at that time, I just don't know how I would have processed all that, you know, and the kind of person I would be today because they were there to feed love and life into me in a way that I cannot possibly explain, especially when it comes to faith. You know, it was, that was a struggle for me as well, especially in that time. I, I was a brand new Christian. And then I learned all these things about how all these people were gone. So that definitely caused a, uh, like just like a rift in my understanding of who God was and what he do and what he could do and what he could mean to us. So having my family around to navigate that for me as well was very important. So I have to say everything just comes down to that support system for me. And um, I just, yeah, I'd be a different catcher without that for sure. You talk about healing and trauma. Uh, you're, you're a burn survivor advocate. You have a book more than my scars. You kind of had two choices and it's either bury it inside or talk about it? Why did you decide to then talk about this rather than go the other way and say, listen, this, I don't want to talk about, because you're now having to relive all the things that you went through each and every day that you talk about this stuff. That's very true. And it's interesting you say that because there were two survivors, right? Um, The second lady 
that survived. I didn't know her prior to the accidents, but her experience is, um, you know, on the same plane, vastly different from mine. You know, where I passed out, she didn't. She remembers everything. She like she remembers everything plus impact everything. Where I sustained third degree burns over sixty five percent of my body, she didn't get any burns. She um, even though we're sitting, we're both like in the front part of the plane, you know, which was interesting. She didn't have any burns, um, but she broke like uh, like I think her bone, like her her arm. And the differences in our in our situation, even though we were in the same plane, were not just physical, but the psychological, the way that we handled how what happened to us mentally is also vastly different because she just became a recluse. She just didn't want to ever talk about it, think about it. She just went retreated into her life, wanted to just forget everything, any of this happened, just wanted to just not be bothered by the world, had no interest in in talking about anything. And I believe that it doesn't really have any, it has more to do with the fact that we both remember different parts of the accidents, like, you know, um, from each other. I think if I had had the experience that she had, where she remembers everything, I cannot tell you for sure if I would be so easily um, led to talk about what happened that day and the events that happened after. Because I feel like that plays a very important role in how much you're willing to share. Because I just feel like her trauma is so much deeper psychologically that, and that's what leads her not to want to talk about it because she remembers everything. And so literally takes her down that path, you know, but I, I passed out at some point. I don't remember the impacts. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps me like lot rationally. It helps because I remember the before, I remember the fear and everything. I remember the plane malfunctioning and falling towards the ground, but I don't remember it hitting the ground, you know? And I think that actually is the reason why I'm able to talk about it more because even though I remember the scary stuff, I don't remember the actual accident and I don't remember the fire everywhere the explosion I don't remember just things that she talked about and told me about that just sound horrific and like make me confused like how either of us even survived something this horrible so um I really think that the reason I'm able to talk about it more is just because that's the part of the the, the part of the experience that I have is one that gave me more physical trauma than mental and so going down that path is Definitely traumatic, but not as bad as it could have been to the point where I would just keep quiet about it totally, you know? So um, that's really, that's my, that's what I believe anyway, you know, because she just like the only person she talked to about that day is me. She doesn't have any interest in like, and cause you know, we became friends after, you know, because I mean, we survived this crazy situation. So naturally we, you know, wanted to bond over that and we did. And so that's the only time I've ever, I've never seen anything in the papers, nothing ever like online. She just doesn't want to say anything to anyone, you know? Mm-hmm. So she's only interested in like associating with me. And, you know, if I ask her to do something or ask her for something or anything, then she's willing to like, you know, um, do that for me. But, you know, I rarely do because I, I don't want to put her through anything that would cause, you know, some kind of regression, you know, like a trauma or like trigger her in some way. So it's just really interesting. I feel like, we both got like two different versions of, of, of trauma of the same event, you know? And um, I think that's, that plays a big role in why I'm able to kind of go down this path over and over. You know, my experience is definitely not as, my memory is not as, as traumatic as hers, but you, you can see my trauma more than, you know, it's inside me. So. You talk about how you were a new Christian when this all happened 
And I know some people say, well, if you're a new Christian, maybe you don't have the strong enough roots to be able to, to weather those kind of storms. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, first of all, how did you become a Christian? And then what were some of the things about your faith that really helped carry you through? So how did I become a new Christian? Um, I guess technically I wasn't new at the time the accident happened. I was a Christian by virtue of my family being Christians. That's mm -hmm. what we believe. You know, yeah. I believe what my parents believed. I believe what my family believed. I went to church because they went and fellowship because they fellowship. So I knew of God. I believed in him and I believed that he existed. Did I have anything personal with him? No. Did I have any interest in having a personal relationship with him? No. I just was okay with just believing because my family believed and just you know, this is this is the family belief system belief right. system that's it you know yeah so um that was the extent of my relationship with god at the time the accident happened um to me he was just this guy in the sky that would kind of like a, a sterner version of my actual dad you know that would be there to make sure i don't have a foot out of line and punish me if i do and you know praise me if i don't so you know just the, he was the author, I guess, of my, of my moral compass, you know, growing up. And that was pretty much it. After the accident happened, it kind of changed because of my circumstances. I got to a place where, quite frankly, medication was just not enough. Mm -hmm. um, all the surgery in the world and all the meds, you know, they, they obviously they helped physically. But nothing was, nothing was really reaching me inside. And I, I felt like my healing was not complete. I felt like there was an element of it that was missing, you know, and, and I, and it was the part of the healing process that was not like, I was not having access to like, like a comfort or a peace inside that would actually make me believe that everything was going to be okay. You know, I, my parents kept talking about it. You know, my mom would, being she was the main representation of faith to me during that time still is but like to me what she had with god was something extremely special and she just had this complete assurance that it was all going to be fine and i just didn't understand i wanted to i wanted to feel that way i wanted to know how she felt that way and and access that and everyone was telling me you know you, you got to know god you you know want that so I was like well okay so let's you know my mom at, at first you know in the beginning you know when I was in the coma I remember you know one thing I remember from the coma definitely my mom's voice as she's telling me what happened I was going to be okay and then she would sing to me often and then she would also read scripture to me so I remember waking up and just you know as time continued the other thing she continued to do for me you know in the beginning about a month or two in, I, I couldn't talk because I had this trachea to my throat. So her voice was all, like, I just wanted her to keep talking and talking and just, and that's what I hung on to, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, she would sing, she would pray, she would read the Bible. She would just talk about any and everything. And the moments when she's like reading the Bible to me were very peaceful. You know, um, it was less about really absorbing the words and just, I don't know, something about the words were just very comforting life-giving you know it was of course I didn't know it was life-giving that it just felt comforting for me in the spirit you know I didn't really understand but I enjoyed it was a nice feeling it was like almost like a lullaby really and I remember as I got better it just became harder and harder to access that feeling and so I just I wanted more of it you know so I started to ask my mom questions about God 
And she was also eager to answer them. You know, she didn't, I could feel like she being excited for me that I was interested in finding out about him for myself, but not wanting to like push me or like dictate how this went. So I could feel that energy from her. And I just started learning about him organically, I suppose. I just, I was curious, you know, about, about her faith and her God, you know, and I wanted to know more about him. And everyone was telling me that he was the person that would give me this piece I was looking for. So, you know, I had no other options. So I was like, I might as well try this. I was also learning how to pray, like, you know, actually just talk to God. You know, my grandma was the one who told me, you know, I need to stop thinking about him as this like big punisher in the sky. He's, mm. he's your dad. You can just, you can just talk to him, cry out to him when things are feeling frustrating. And, and that happened often. And so it was, you know, around this time, you know, this budding faith and this, 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 um, I guess, seeking out of him, you know, for myself for the first time ever that I learned that, you know, everyone in the accident died. This was four months in and all my friends that I thought were like in school, <laughs> like I thought I just got the worst of it. I thought I was the only one in the hospital that was like this badly wounded and that everyone else was okay and they were all in school. Like, because if one person survives, like it doesn't make it, of course, no one, if you survive a plane crash, that means it wasn't that bad. So everyone is alive. It just, it made logical sense to me. So finding out the truth was earth shattering because every, not just about like the fact that they were all gone, but like, how can God let this happen? This is crazy. I thought y'all said he was a good God. Like, how can he allow 60 children, aside from everyone else that died, like to die? all at once, like in this horrible situation. So that through like a uh, spoke in the wheels of my understanding of God and in my faith, my search. And um, I remember it was just days and days of depression, crying, confusion. And um, my mom, my grandma, my dad, everyone around me would try to just, you know, just kind of comfort me as much as they could. And it was really my mom that kind of a, uh, said something one day that struck me and she was just like and I really I talk about this in the book because this was a turn a very major turning point for me she said honestly sometimes we we don't know why bad things happen like we live in this world and bad things just they happen to good and bad people it just happens you know and you know that was for me that was like my realization that oh, you know, being a Christian isn't going to exempt you from life happening to you, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And for me, that was profound because like, oh, okay, so then wh- why are we, what is the point of this? Like, what? so what makes it special? Why are we all, why do people talk about this? Like it's something special to be a part of, to, to be a Christian, to walk this path. And so she just said, it doesn't exempt you from life happening to you. Yes. But it gives you a place to go to when life does happen. Mm. It tells you that everything's going to be okay. It gives you a place of, 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 of refuge. That is, that is who God is for us. He is that place to go to. He is that, that source of comfort that no one else can give you when the worst things happen to you and you survive them, you know, that is the, that, that is the place that you run to because no one on earth can comfort 
there's some traumas and some grief that no one can comfort except God, like the grief of losing a child, like the grief of losing just usually has to do with like the worst of it is losing people to death. And I feel like that was the moment that like just changed my entire point of view, my entire perspective. So he doesn't make bad things happen. That was so important for me to understand. He didn't make this accident happen. He didn't cause this. This is just what happens sometimes in life. Bad things happen. But when they do happen, even if you can't control when life happens, what you do have control over is like how you react to life, you know? So Ketchy, you can decide, you know, for me, I was like, I can decide to like turn away from him in anger because of what happened and lose access to that peace that I had been getting from learning about him. Or I could see him as my great comforter and that place I can run to when these bad things happen and when I feel horrible and I feel like I need a refresher. I need him to comfort me and tell me everything's going to be okay. And so for me, that became what I latched onto. I just latched onto that. It made so much sense to me. And, you know, it, it, it solved the mystery of this being, how can he allow bad things happen? And then at the same time, also be the person that like the source of like this piece, you know, it didn't, those two things couldn't go together. And so it solved that mystery for me. And then it just started to make sense because when I thought about all my friends that were gone, and then I thought about their parents, their loved ones, one thing that struck me and that helped me find purpose in all this was I didn't want this life that was saved to be saved for nothing. I wanted, I wanted the parents and the loved ones that, that those kids left behind to see that I was, that I appreciated this life, the second chance I was given and that I appreciated their prayers because they saw my life as this one hope out of this dark thing that happened and that shook the entire country. But Ketchy survives, you know, one person survived. We're, we're, we're out of all these kids. This, this person survived. We're going to hold on to that. We're going to hope that she gets better. I couldn't let those feelings and those prayers go to waste. And, you know, if I had decided to stay in that depressive state where like, you know, why me, why, why, how, like, cause my question was not even about like, cause I, I didn't wish I died in their place or that I, I didn't feel like I didn't deserve to live. It was more like, if I'm alive, then you're God. Any, everyone else could be alive. Like, why didn't you save everyone? You know, that's, that was my confusion because you are great enough to do that. You know, I didn't get that. And, but I, I realized like, as I was learning more and more about him, like I wanted him to allow me to live a life that showed those that lost loved ones that day that I, I believed that, that, um, I could live with a purpose for them. So it was about tying my, my, my life and my purpose to, to those that passed away that didn't have the second chance that I have. I wanted to live for them. I wanted to do things that would make them proud of me, make their loved ones proud of me. And I think that that was another thing that really helped me hold on because I, my life stopped being just mine. You know, it was a pressure I put on myself. No one asked me to do that. No one made me feel this way ever. I just felt it was the least I could do, you know? So I think navigating, you know, how I was going to turn what happened into a strength, something that would help me move forward rather than cripple me. That was something that was born out of my new understanding of who God was. And um, I knew that it was something I couldn't do without him. So, you know, I, I, I kind of had to hold on to him.
So um, I think that was it. That was really, I mean, I, hopefully that makes sense. This is a combination yes. of all things brought me to that place of understanding of how and my relationship with God was kind of born from that kind of situation. And since then, it's just been this journey, you know, still learning about him and um, getting more used to, you know, as time passes, you know, praying more often, knowing of him in the Bible and, you know, just kind of making sure he's a part of every step of my life. That way I can stick to what I said about living for the angels, which is what they started to call the kids that passed away, the 60 angels. If I want to live for them and I want to do things that would make them proud, then I, you know, I want to um, continuously, continuously, um, you know, just walk this path, doing things that I hope God wants me to do. So, yeah. I had mentioned it before. You, you had also mentioned it as well, more than my scars. Why then did you want to write this book? This book for me, it was number one cathartic. You know, after everything happened in South Africa, I had no interest in revisiting that part of my life ever again. You know, um, you know, it's interesting because I'm not, I'm not really someone that I would consider bury everything, don't ever talk about it again. That's not really me. I don't mind, as you can see, talking about these things certain things anyway about it it's the faith part of it the trauma part of it those are easier for me to talk about because they're almost kind of a they're they're more about what was going on in my head than what was happening to me physically to write this book and to tell the story would mean going back to the physical like the gritty difficulty of of having third degree burns and and going through that process of dealing with this new body and everything and revisiting those memories which were the the most painful memories of my life were something that definitely was like not going to happen. You know, it was a box. It was dusty. It was in my mind. It was there and it was there forever. I was never going to touch it ever. I had gone through it once in South Africa. I was not going to go back and go through it again in my head, like any ever again. So as time passed after I moved to America, that was just a part of my life that I was just never going to think about. And I didn't realize that that was literally me like, that's it, that's actually a traumatic response to trauma. Like for me, I thought I was okay. You know, I, I've been, cause I recovered from this physically and I was for the most part, I was, I mean, I was me. I didn't, I re, I was my, my personality didn't change things about me that were not physical were still the same. And I had learned during my time in South Africa to treat my scars as part of me, but not everything about me. So, so, you know, I felt like I was in a pretty good place. Like, my scars don't define me. You know, this, this was like my mantra. So I believe I was fine, but I didn't realize that not even wanting to talk about all that stuff, not having this seven month vacuum in my mind of what South Africa represents and putting it somewhere in my, like in the past and never wanting to talk about it. That's like, you know, you're, you're not over that obviously. And so um, I wanted to tell my story because I wanted to, I wanted to show people the, how relatable it is to go through trauma and how, and how it's basically the, the fact that overcoming trauma is, I talk about it a lot, but from a place of like the other side, and it's, it might seem easier for me to talk about, you know, you know, you can do this, you can do that, overcome this. But like, for me to get to this point, a lot happened. There was a long process. And so I wanted to share that. So people that I'm always talking to about, you know, overcoming trauma can, can see how long it took for me to get there. And relate to that. I wanted I wanted to be my story to be relatable to these people. I didn't want 
because I know that, you know, a plane crash is not, it's not like something that everyone, like, you know, it's not a regular experience, but, you know, it doesn't have to be as big as a plane crash to be a valid trauma. And scars don't have to be as visible as mine to be valid either. You know, invisible scars are as real as visible scars. And so I wanted to connect with my audience in a better way and show them, like, my story of overcoming trauma is not as different as you think it might be from yours you know, but to do that, I had to delve into those memories in that box. And so that's why it took me so long to write the book, because I realized every time I started, I would realize, dang it, I have to talk about South Africa. Yeah, And that was like a huge hurdle for me. You know, I started writing this book in 2018 Hmm. and finished it strictly because of the pandemic. Like literally I would not have, I finished this book last year. Took me, I guess, five years roughly. Yeah, about four years or so. But like most of it was written in 2020, (laughs) especially the South Africa section, because I was now I had downtime. I wasn't traveling as much anymore. No distractions, no excuses. So basically, I had nothing but me and my memories. And it took the entire the entire (laughs) like half of like the from like May down to December of 2020 was me trying to get through South Africa and um but I I realized it was cathartic you know it was something that I think needed to happen and that's a part of I can't tell my story without telling that that's majorly where most things happen for me that's where most mindsets most mindset like most uh like mind shifts happen most perspective changes happen in that time of my life so there was just no avoiding it so um I think after getting through that I realized that I had something here and it was something I wanted to share with the world, you know, for whatever good it would do. I just want people to feel not alone in their in their trauma and in what it takes to overcome it. Well, I'm glad that you did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because there are so many parallels just with the process that you've had to go through, the journey you've had to take. And I love that you say, you know, scars come in different shapes and sizes. They're, you know, it's people like to compare in this day and age hmm. and they, they do the whole, well, I didn't have to go through that. So I should really, you know, suck exactly. it up and carry on. But trauma is trauma is trauma. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, you know, that's something I definitely deal with a lot, you know, I mean, no, what you went through, you know, that's just, and I'm like, and I get that, you know, mm-hmm. to an extent I do get that because people are like, they wonder had they been in that situation, would they handle it the way I did? Most likely not. We're all different people. But like, it's not a matter of, you know, if you were in this situation or not, you know, this is my cross, I suppose. Like, this is my version of trauma, you know, or or my cross to bear. But we all have ours, you know, and one is not bigger or worse or better than the other. They just are what they are. And to you, your experience that that crippled you it doesn't have to be plane crash it can be anything as long as it's something that hindered you in some way that's what makes the trauma something that's keeping you from accomplishing what you've always wanted to accomplish or it's holding you back in different ways that you, other people may not even be able to understand you know I, I like telling people that like you know none of us can take on each other's trauma you know we that's we're built in our own specific way to handle what life throws at us. So it's not like because I've dealt with this, that that means I can deal with every other level of trauma down the line because I'm at this level of trauma. That's not how it works. 
I know people who have gone through things that I would go through another plane crash before I go through that. And that's facts. So like, mm. it really is not about a, it's not a comparing game. It's not the way it is. You know, it's about, you know, just being able to handle what life throws at you specifically, you know, and understanding that this is your own specific trauma and, and um, cross to bear your own hurdles to overcome and no one else's, you know, so give it the same value you would give any other person's trauma. It's, you know, cause if you, when you invalidate your trauma, you, you compare, you basically are, you're underestimating, you know, what it is that you have had to go through because you're comparing it to someone else's and you're thinking, I need to just suck it up. You know, that's, that doesn't help anyone, least of all you. So um, whenever I like give like speeches and talk to people, I try to like really, especially kids, especially teenagers, I try to just let them know that that's not how it works. You don't compare, you know, what you're going through is just as valid and you need to give it that importance, that same importance, because that's the only way you're going to be able to overcome it really. The book is uh, available now more than my scars. Catchy on all the socials. K-E-C-H-I and catchyofficial.com. We appreciate you taking some time and uh, sharing your heart today. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Essentially going into this, Holly, I was like, okay, there's a thousand million billion questions that I have to ask, but it's also, you don't want to ask too many questions because there's there's an incredible book for us to read through. You don't want to play spoiler in that. But I just really love, and we say this a lot, authenticity. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Ketchy was just like, this is what I was going through. This is where I was at. And, it, you know, trauma for everybody is very different, but trauma is trauma. Yeah, exactly. I feel like today was a bit of a, a session in how to process your trauma, things that mm-hmm. you can do. And knowing that you're not alone, I feel is often half the battle. And admitting that, you know, you, there are struggles and that not every day is going to be a perfect day. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know her mom, but can I just say that I love her mom? I know. Just, she seemed like <laughs> the, the type of person. And this is what I love is that, you know, she stayed by bedside and would read the Bible and would sing the songs and would mm-hmm. just be there to be there. Yeah. And sometimes I think we miss that opportunity uh, as parents, as friends, as family to just be there to be there. Exactly. Just to support, take a day at a time, and in some cases, a moment at a time. Mm. Amen. Thank you to uh, everybody who listens. Thank you for reaching out. Find us on all the socials. And you could download on all the places like Apple Podcasts. I mean, Holly goes wherever you get your pod, wherever you get your listening podcasting yeah. stuff, yeah. rather than the non-listening <laughs> podcast stuff. But we just want you to reach out and be a part of the projectors. We don't use that enough. Yeah, you don't use that enough. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> oh, goodness. But you can also go to faithstrongtoday.com and check us out there. Yeah.